We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. years now and so entrenched in being PAs, we need to get out there and and I would encourage if you're a PA educator listening or a pre-PA student, it's incumbent on you too to become external. Hello and thank you for joining us for our 48th episode in season three. Today, Stephanie speaks with PA Cindy Lord, an extraordinary PA leader who helped develop the Quinnipiac University PA program and the Case Western Reserve University PA program. Cindy has served our profession in a multitude of roles, including her initial service on the board of the Student Academy of the American Academy of Physician Associates, where she helped develop the infamous AAPA Medical Challenge Bowl. She's also past president of the Connecticut Academy of Physician Assistants, a past president of the American Academy of Physician Assistants, a past chair of the NCCPA Health Foundation, and a former member of the board of directors for the International Association of Medical Science Educators. She has spent much of her 31-year career working in both family medicine and academia. Currently, Cindy works as a volunteer clinician and preceptor at the Lake County Free Clinic in Painesville, Ohio. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our papathpodcast.com website. Cindy Lord, it is so exciting to have you join us on the podcast today. Uh, this that you are certainly someone that we have been hoping to have have on and have as a guest. So welcome and thanks for being with us today. Well, Stephanie, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be asked to participate. You've had great podcasts with a great variety of uh, guests. All right. Well, let's just jump in uh, and start talking about some things. Uh, first and foremost, we're really interested in hearing from you about your path to becoming a PA. How did how did Cindy Lord become a PA? And, you know, then maybe your journey into PA education and some of the leadership. You certainly have a, a long history of service to our profession. So maybe talk about that a little bit as well. Sure. Well, I am a third generation PA. So I guess I'm in the dinosaur group because I went to school in the 80s. And I always tell people I did not grow up saying I want to be a PA. And I think it's so neat today that our profession is into grammar school, elementary school now. People are at, know what PAs are and they grow up in a path. And I didn't. I was headed to med school. And in the 80s, very hard for women to get into med school. So now they call it a gap year. And I guess I was ahead of the curve and thought of this, well, I'm going to take a year and dabble in some research and ended up working for two physicians and oncologists and a pulmonologist. And I stayed there for seven years and gained lots of skills and knowledge and actually learned about the PA profession there because they had PAs that worked with them. And it was just a better fit for me. I love the generalist nature, even though I've been in primary care for 31 years and never left. I liked the concept of being able to have that lateral mobility. And I like the concept of having a generalist knowledge base and continuing to have to maintain that throughout my career. And I knew there was nothing about, oh, you get to spend more time. And I'm like, nope, I have the same 15 minute visit, the same 10 minute visit. I'm double booked like my physician colleagues, but it's that relationship building. And I I also like to say that we were doing team long before it was sexy. So long before IPE was really a word into professional education and collaboration. And I like being on a team and like being part of a team. And I like being able to collaborate with people. So it was just a good fit for me. So I went to school in the 80s and uh, had, a, had a wonderful experience at Yale and went into primary care. It was was not on my list at all. Uh, so I always tell students and pre-PA students, 
You can go in with ideas, but keep your mind open. This was not anywhere on any of my lists, but I happened to uh, be, I did my primary care in Cape Cod in the summer for three months. So that was tough. And that doc just inspired me and connected me with a colleague from med school. And I ended up back in Connecticut near where I went to undergrad at the University of Connecticut and took a job in primary care and family med. Uh, And that was an amazing experience. So we are still a tight-knit group. And I I think that it's wonderful that you can kind of find your way, even though I thought I'd be in surgery or back in oncology. And that's where I was until I entered PA education. Yeah. And, you know, there was a time when most PAs graduating from PA school went into primary care. And we've seen a huge swing towards some of the specialties and particularly the surgical subspecialties. We've seen an increase in the utilization of PAs. Talk about that. I mean, you've been a really vocal advocate for for PAs in primary care. So maybe chat a little bit about that. I have been, and I'm passionate about primary care, and I think PAs need to be in every discipline. And, you know, I think when this also kind of leads into the bigger picture of when we talk about our name and we talk about, oh, PAs can't get jobs in certain areas, we've created some of those issues because we haven't stayed in primary care. We haven't continued to be in general internal medicine. And it's great to be doing just right hand surgery, but you have to have that broad spectrum. And we haven't done a good job of that. And part of that, I think, is because when our students Students go when they rotate in the ER and they hear from all those ER docs, oh, three 12-hour shifts and I love my life and it's like a TV show and it's so exciting. And then they go to do their four weeks in the primary care office or the family medicine office and I'm tired, I'm here late, I have to do all my epic work at home. And so they haven't had good role modeling from, and, and our physician colleagues have been amazing preceptors. And if it weren't for them, you know, we'd be in big trouble with our clinicals, but we need to have more PA preceptors. We need to have more PAs across the disciplines so that the, our students have better role modeling. I think primary care, and you know, I think our generalist training allows PAs, even in specialties, to have a piece of primary care. I know my colleague who's worked in the surgical ICU for 31 years, went to school together, and they call her, they say, oh, you know women's health too. Oh, you know rashes too, because you're a PA. And I think there's still value there. I'm going to be an old old fashioned and say there is value. So even if you're doing right-hand surgery, you still have a stethoscope and know how to listen when they're wheezing and can either take care of them or if you have to refer them to pulmonology. So I, I think it's still important we be, we be part of primary care but PAs belong everywhere. It's just finding that balance. And and I think we as educators own that. A profession owns that a bit, but I think as educators, we own that because we set the examples and we need to have PA preceptors in all of those areas. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. That's one thing that I hear sometimes from students when they're looking at jobs. Um, You know, they're getting close to graduation and they're looking at jobs and they're thinking about you know, whether go to whether to go into a primary care specialty or into, you know, a more subspecialized area. And I do hear from them, they're concerned that they're going to lose a lot of that, you know, kind of primary care based training that we deliver in PA education, they hear, you know, that they're going to lose those skills. And, you know, I'm, I'm always quick to point out, you know, you've got that basis, you've got that foundation of primary care training. And regardless of whether you're doing right hand surgery or left foot surgery or something very subspecialized, All of those patients um, have other medical issues. You know, it's not like people that have a hip replacement don't have diabetes, don't have COPD, don't have some of these other confounding uh, health issues. And so you you utilize those medicine skills regardless of, of the specialty that you choose to practice in. You know, another thing I've also seen and heard from students who want to go into primary care is the lack of jobs in primary care. Now, you're in a more rural area, and so that may not be true. And I'm in the state of Ohio, which has huge rural areas. We do have our big urban areas, but we have rural areas. And students have trouble finding jobs in those areas because there aren't enough PAs working in those areas and there weren't enough PAs precepting in those areas. So it is a cycle that we have to learn to break. You know, when we look at all of the job opportunities, there's all these surgical and surgical subspecialty jobs and there are all these emergency medicine jobs in our area because of the healthcare system. So again, I I think it's incumbent upon us as PA educators to step in and play a role in changing that paradigm. I agree. There's there's a there's a heavy responsibility on us to make sure that the messaging is appropriate for students. 
So speaking with students in PA schools, uh, you have a long history in PA education and uh, you started your career, started your career at Quinnipiac University, correct? Mm-hmm, and, I did. and then were the founding program director of the Case Western Reserve University PA program. So talk a little bit about just kind of your PA education career and then also the, uh, the Case Western program. Sure. So it is funny, you know, as a student, I was on the the SAPA, the Student Academy of the AAPA board as the liaison to PAEA and to SAPA. And that's when I learned that, wow, educators aren't really like teachers aren't against us. PA educators probably fret more than we do. And and that's when I knew I had great mentorship uh, while being on those boards. And that's when I knew I would probably go into PA education at some point. But I, again, made a miscalculation and said, oh, that's when you're old and ready to retire, that you do all your clinical practice and then you settle into education. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And so I was in practice in family medicine in Connecticut, uh, happy as can be, doing leadership roles. And I was president of the American of the Connecticut Academy of PAs. And was approached by Quinnipiac University to be on their advisory board because they were thinking about starting a PA program. And at first, of course, I thought, oh, blasphemy, Yale is the program in our state and you should only have one program in your state. And how wrong was I there? Uh, And so, but said yes, because I knew the person and uh, Dana Sayer Stanhope, a wonderful person and had been in PA education, lots of energy. And I thought, oh, good opportunity to work with a, a great PA educator. And so I served on the advisory board and I wasn't on there long before she said, have you thought about PA education? And I thought, yes, when I'm older and retiring. And she said, no, now. And uh, she convinced me. And with Bill Stanhope being there and Dana, I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to, if I'm going to learn, to learn from people who've been doing it. So I uh, started at Quinnipiac University, helped found the program. Dana was a program director and I became the uh, the the didactic or academic coordinator and uh, did that for four years. And then Dana moved to California. She and Bill to start a new program in California at the time. Uh, We were just, this was in 1994 is when we started at Quinnipiac. And so by 98, we were starting to see a little, we thought, oh, a huge proliferation, but it turned out to be a very little proliferation of programs at the time. So she went to California and they promoted me from within to become the program director and uh, stayed at Quinnipiac for 20 years. And again, most of it as program director. And that's when uh, Josanne Pagel, who was on the board, I had come off the board of the AAPA and Josanne came on as treasurer when Bruce retired. And uh, she said, hey, you've got to look at Case Western. I said, that's Ohio. I'm from Connecticut. And she said, no, you've got to look at they're starting this program. I'm on the committee. You've got to talk to them. And I did a little bit of research. And my kids said, mom, it's Case Western Reserve. You should look at it. I said, but I'm blue and gold. I'm Connecticut. It's Quinnipiac all the way. And I'm Yale. What can, what, I belong here. But I did my research and found that I don't know if you know, but Ohio was actually settled by Connecticut. So in the war, in the Revolutionary War, if you fought, you didn't get money, they gave you land. Go west, young man, go west. And so um, not far from where we were living, Waterbury, one town up, they settled what was now known as the Western Reserve. And of course, Case, which was the Case Institute of Technology, merged with the Western Reserve, which had the medical school back in the 60s. So when I interviewed, they said, why would you come out here? You're from Connecticut and you're you're just Connecticut. And I said, well, to claim what's rightfully mine, uh, because this is Ohio. Um, And I knew that Josanne had done amazing work. And I felt that Ohio also, I wanted to make an impact on helping Josanne and John Trimbath and the others in the state um, advance PA practice. You know, they didn't get their practice act until 2008 when all of us were doing all kinds of other things. And I remember I was on the board of directors and we were at the AMA meeting and heard they, they finally could practice without all those limitations. They had not model legislation yet, but they were approaching it. And they didn't finish that model act until 2015, until I arrived. So, you know, there was a whole gap. So you had a lot of older docs who said PAs do a history or PAs are helpers. And then you had this whole group of young up-and-comers, residents, fellows, who'd never even seen PAs because they're really in these scattered areas. And so I thought, you know, I had that grandiose idea that could I start another program 20 years after I had done one many years ago? And could I help a state advance their practice in the sense of putting out great PAs um, to make a great impression and advance what PAs do in the state? So that's how I got there. 
Well, and you were certainly a, a mentor and a role model for me as I started the Creighton University PA program. You know, one of the first things that I did was reach out to, to folks that I knew that not only had a long history in PA education, but also had uh, recently gone through. You were just a little bit ahead of me in the in the development process. And you know, I will remember one, always remember, and I still tell people one thing that you said to me, and whether you remember it or not, you said that developing a PA program will be one of the hardest things, perhaps secondary to PA, going through a PA program, developing a PA program will be one of the hardest things that you ever do, but it will be the most rewarding. And I can say that is, without question, that is that is absolutely true. I totally agree. It's um, and and it's been so interesting because 1992, 93, when we were developing Quinnipiac's program, we were the 57th program to be accredited at the time. And then, you know, fast forward to 2015 with a whole new set of standards. We went in as the fourth standard. We came out entering into the fifth, the fifth edition of the standards of accreditation had not yet been released, but we were being told we had to address those in our visit. Just very different. But you also, I had all those years of experience to say, here are all the things students told me that I couldn't change at Quinnipiac just because I would have had to like, just, you know, I don't know. I think Jonathan did it out in Colorado. So I'm just going to implode the program and we're just going to start with a new curriculum. And I think good for him. And Tony did it out in uh, Iowa. I wasn't quite ready to do that uh, at Quinnipiac because I was able to, you know, we were always rapidly evolving, you know, Bill Colehip and I were always saying, we're not going to, if a wheel's not broken, we're not going to fix it. We're always looking for a better mousetrap, right? How can we create a better mousetrap? How can we do it better? But there were things that I learned from the students that I said, oh, I will do this differently. And so I was able to do that as we started the curriculum. And I knew I could, I had a good solid curriculum to start, but it wouldn't be our final curriculum. I wanted us to get through accreditation. And and while we were doing that kind of brainstorm and figure out where the, what we wanted to do new and different and innovative and how we moved more towards active learning versus the old sage on the stage. Um, And so we've done that over the past uh, seven years and a half years. Yeah. So for our pre-PA listeners, talk a little bit about, about Case Western Reserve and talk a little bit about, you know, what, what makes the program unique. Tell us a little bit about the program and, and for the pre-PA listener, what may set them apart as an applicant to that program. Sure. So uh, of course I'm partial, uh, amazing program located in housed in an amazing school. So the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine is usually ranked somewhere between the 24th and 25th med school in the country. So I think for any pre-PA student, you have to look at the program, but then you have to look at their home, right? Your house is only as strong as the foundation on which it's built. So do you want a house made of straw or a house made of brick? And when you look at the resources, and that was a draw for me, when I looked at the resources there, a library that has almost too many resources, it's so amazing that the students almost, if you like electronic books, I don't, I'm not sure you have to buy any books. I mean, very few, Um, but just the resourcing in their libraries. Amazing. Um, Our building, amazing. When we got there, we were in the old med school, but the new one was being built. And uh, I just got off a meeting. We were talking about our wonderful health education campus where we have the school of medicine. So all of the medical students and at case we have two medical schools or two tracks. We have the university uh, division, which is Case Western Reserve. And then Cleveland Clinic has its own smaller medical school, um, the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine, about 34 students in a cohort. But their degree comes from Case. So we have the two tracks, the college track and the university track. We have the PA program there. We have all of nursing from undergrad right through PhD. And we have the entire dental school all co-located in an amazing building that was built around interprofessionality. And when they first told me that to lure me there, I thought, okay, yeah, how can a building do that? And when I saw the building and saw this amazing atrium and thought, oh, all this atrium, this could have been space I could have used for teaching. But you know what? It is amazing. It encourages and there's just a natural way to be together for students to be together for learning and teaching. So that's um, that's also a piece. So it's not about the brick and mortar. Trust me, pretty building doesn't mean anything. It's what's within the brick and mortar. So I would say resourcing a case very strong. The other piece for me that's always been important in my life at Quinnipiac and at case has been community. And we are rooted in the community. It's it's a pillar in our mission. And I just think today with the loss of community hospitals in most places, the loss of private practice and large healthcare systems, 
that say they do a lot for the community, but you look around the community and they're still struggling. And Cleveland is not uh, alone in their struggles, but they have their struggles. You know, we have one of the highest infant mortalities in the country. We have streets that we can identify in Cleveland where infant mortality approaches 18 and 19%. And so being in the community and being able to walk with our patients and our clients, not telling them from our ivory tower how they can be better. So a case, you've got the big research going on, which will help people get better, but you need people to be able to be in the community to help the community get that care, understand that care, et cetera. So we are rooted in the community um, so much so that actually part of our curriculum is done in the community. Uh, throughout the first year, preclinical clerkship is the course, but it runs a full year, part one and part two, includes our interprofessional education, but includes experiential learning where students, we take the classroom into the community. Who wants to hear me talk about the social determinants of health? Just another sage on the stage, but taking students in the community where they're working with the Cleveland Metro School District and we're working with children and drawing lead levels, doing lead levels on children. And when you see that, when students can understand that lead is still an issue and it's not just in Flint, Michigan, it's in Cleveland, we have higher levels of lead than they do in Flint, right? Or, or working with older adults in their homes um, and seeing, you know, we always, everybody always says they want to walk in the shoes of their patient until they do. And they realize, oh, golly, is the home safe? Or how lonely is this person? Or how are they living on their own? So we do a lot. We have experiential learning as part of the curriculum. So I think that's, if that's something, I always tell students, if you're not interested in that, this just isn't the right program because we are about the community and doing lots of work. And, and you know, having a bake sale and selling cupcakes and giving your money to a little donation, that's lovely, but that's not what we do. We're not a one and done. We make relationships with community agencies and we work with them forever and uh, throughout the year. And I always say the, the poor and the hungry and those that don't have a home have those, whether you have an exam the next day or a paper due or you're going on vacation, right? So it's an ongoing process. So that's another feature. I think that's important. Um, I think another piece for me that was important and drew me there was the dental school. So um, the jawbone is connected to the toe bone and oral health is part of overall health. And I've been an oral health champion in the PA world since Anita Glicken got us all hooked on, hooked on oral health back in 20, 2009-2010. She was president-elect of, of PAEA. I was president-elect of the academy. And we said, instead of bringing the four orgs together and fighting to see who could be the gorilla in the room, what if we actually did something together without fighting? And we found unity in all four orgs and the student academy and the PAF working together in oral health. So we work with the dental school. Um, our students actually rotate through the dental school. They uh, rotate through the dental clinic. Uh, so they work with dental residents. So I think having that added value of, I always say to the students, let's look at the skills we can provide you that employers want to see. And I know every student, as you're, if you're listening and you're a student, everybody wants to put their their rotations and what amazing hospital they went to. And every state has amazing healthcare systems and they all look the same. Um, but when you can put that you have education in oral health and can do fluoride varnish, or that you have worked on an actual quality improvement project in the community. Our students are all on, I've worked, we've worked on a grant, a HRSA grant with uh, one of our large healthcare systems, Metro Health, and all of our students participate in a quality improvement project as part of a real project being done by one of the large healthcare systems in the city. So having that skill set, having using the PAEA substance use disorder curriculum and having their substance use curriculum, having their MAT training, their medication assisted training and licensing, having all of that. I said, that's what an employer looks for when they go to hire you, because there's 10,000 of you that all look the same, but they're looking for what do you bring to the table besides being a practitioner? Because there's 10,000 new grads that are practitioners. Can you bring other things? So we look for added value in the skill sets we provide our students. I think another feature for, for those who are pre-PAs, something that used to be very common in PA school were preclinical clerkships, allowing PA students to start to see patients in their first year to at least practice the basic clinical skills, history taking, um, a physical exam, presenting oral presentations, medical documentation, being able to work on an electronic health record. And because of the shortage of clinical sites, 
we've seen that diminish and almost go to zero. And in Ohio, we're the only program that still has a preclinical clerkship. So our students start in May and uh, by October, they are placed in an outpatient facility, primary care, orthopedic, some outpatient facility affiliated with our university hospital system. And they go half day a week where they practice those basic skills. They get to see teamwork. They get to understand the roles and responsibilities of different health professionals, whether it's the front desk, the nurse, the doctor. Um, and so that also helps them, it, you know, gets them out of the classroom. So they're happy to not be in the classroom. And every one of them, we survey them, have all said it helped them in clinicals because they were acculturated to what was going to happen. They felt comfortable in their role. They felt comfortable approaching a patient and doing basic skill sets. So their clinical year could be focused on garnering more knowledge and application of knowledge. Yeah, I agree. That is something that I incorporated you know, when, when we when my team developed the Creighton University Omaha um, program. That's something that we developed and incorporated into our curriculum too. We, I think that's something that has been lost a little bit over the years, but I, I think that those skills are are incredible. So if I'm a pre-PA applicant looking at Case Western, what are, I mean, you, you've outlined some just incredible, unique features of your program that I think make it a really attractive option for students that are, that are evaluating programs. What is, what is something, if I'm a pre-PA student, that I can do to, to really set myself as a part as an applicant and make myself more competitive for your program? So we'd like to see what students have done or are doing in the community already. Um, you know, it's a variety. People have different. We don't have a community service requirement, but we like to see what their community involvement has been. Could be in the area of advocacy. We've had students who've done amazing work legislatively or with advocacy. It could be your kind of traditional community service. It could be some international work or work with different um, populations of patient or of, of people. Um, and so we like to see that. We do a holistic approach in our in, in our application process, but we're looking for people who are committed to the community. I, I will just say that over and over. You know, you're not going to come to case and then say, oh, I really don't want to do this. Can you can I just get a pass on these things? So we are looking for what is that community engagement? Um, we are looking for diversity and diversity of life you know, it's geographic, right? When you grow up in Arizona, that's different than growing up in Connecticut. If you grew up in the rural part of Ohio, that's different than growing up in New York City. Of course, ethnocultural diversity, trying to help make our profession look more like what our patient population, what our country looks like, and welcoming all to the table. So we're looking for people who are have heart. We're looking for people who are genuine, um, don't need to be coached, don't want you to be coached, want them to be authentic. Um, I would say we do require direct patient care experience. And that's not because I think it makes anyone, I don't think you do better in PA school academically. I think what it, we know what it does is the level of maturity, the acculturation to the US healthcare system, the introduction to working on a team, and then when those students all come and form this team, I always say we're not accepting a class, we're accepting a team, and you're looking for team members, everybody has their Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame, right? Everybody brings something together, something different to the table. And I say, think of it as a picture today with all the little pixels. Each of us is a pixel and you're brilliant and shiny. That pixel is brilliant and shiny and bright. But when you put all of them together, it makes this amazing picture. And we all become better. I become better. Our faculty become better because we all learn from within about each other, the real true essence of interprofessional education, but within this kind of PA world. So we're looking for that diverse experience in their in their healthcare experience, in their community, and just as, as people. So I think those are some of the, of course, we all have our our prerequisites, which if you're a pre-PA student, I'm going to apologize that we haven't figured out how to standardize that. And if anything, the list seems to get longer, not shorter. And I think that's a barrier. I think it is a barrier. I think as, and it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Remember when we started our profession, we were a competency-based profession. And so we were very unique in our educational model. You trained in the military, a community college where you had a 
four-year institution where you went to medical school. We had these very diverse ways of education because it all came out at the end because it was competency-based. And as we wanted to advance ourselves as a profession and we want to write prescription and we wanted more practice privilege, unfortunately, with that comes the negative side of that is you had legislators who heard from other professions. How can you let them do that? They trained in the military. They didn't even have a school. They were in a community college. And so when we became so attached to an academic degree, it changes things. And so you're now in academic centers that have requirements. And as PA programs, we have some autonomy, but you're still housed in an academic center. And so I think that's created a challenge. And I think it's created a barrier for diversity in our profession. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we can, <laughs> we could talk, we have talked and we will continue to talk. We've, t- you know, we can talk about diversity all day, all day long, all week long, all year long. It's, it's a real challenge. And, and it's not just the PA profession. I think all health professions are facing this, but you know, one of the things that I think is has been a little bit unique to the PA profession, um, you know, from a, from the diversity perspective, is that when you know when we talk about gender diversity, you know, when when this profession began, because our our history is rooted in uh, soldiers coming back from World War II, and they had you know they were medics and they had all this incredible field experience, and uh, you know the founders of the, this profession said, how can we how can we parlay that into you know usable skills and and uh, you know an opportunity for those folks coming coming back. Um, to continue to function in the U.S. healthcare system. And so because of that, originally, our profession was almost predominantly male. But we've seen a huge swing from a a predominantly male profession to, if you look at the the, um, statistics, our profession has been stuck at largely, roughly 75% women and and 25% men for years now. Can you reflect a little bit on that and and that swing and where you think we should go for to try to balance out? A, a, you spoke earlier about having our, our our health workforce be reflective of our patient population. So trying to get back to um, some sort of diversity of a balance of men and women and either and even you know those who identify as other genders as well. Yes. So you're right. It's been very interesting. You know, four medics from Vietnam who had served in Vietnam come and and now we are predominantly women. So, you know, as a woman and an advocate of women and women's rights, I, I love the fact that women entered into this profession and it's not as hard, but I also believe in balance. And I think, again, there's lots of things at play here when you're now talking about all PA programs at a master's level and locate at, which is wonderful and located in academic institutions. You're talking about cost that, you know, early PAs will tell you, oh, my golly, I could never afford this. How do people do this? And so if you're thinking about, you know, again, there is inequity in salary, but for women, the profession, I think, seemed or seems um, very appealing because they are able to step away and have a family and tone and and manage it. So that's become very appealing. I, I've been reading a number of articles about Serena Williams and looking at the deci- the hard decision she's had to make. If she was a male, she wouldn't have to step away. They get to just do whatever they want, their kids, whatever they do. But she is stepping into another realm, not stepping away from the world, but stepping away from tennis. And I think, you know, we look similarly when women look at what professions they can do in medical school, it's real tough um, to do that. And I think the PA profession provided that outlet for women that they were able to do that and balance family. So that was great. But how do we bring men and uh, those who identify as other back under under the tent? I think we have to look at better scholarship and financial support for all of our students and diversity, ethnocultural diversity, because most of these schools, even, you know, there aren't, even state schools aren't inexpensive. I always say, if you're going to go to PA school, you have to have a rich uncle or a gold card in your pocket. It's just, I know it's not the debt load that you take on in medical school, but it's still a huge debt load. And many of our younger students, learners today are coming into graduate school with debt from their undergrad. And so they enter in on day one saying, I got to graduate in 24 months and make $200,000 to pay my debt off. And so I think, you know, we have to look at cost and how to help finance, you know, there's only so much National Health Service Corps and and, and enrolling in the military to go around. You know, in medical school, I look at the, the plethora of financial 
support and aid that they get. And I have nothing for my students, nothing, you know, here, take a loan. Um, and so I think we have to address that somehow. We have to engage outside of our profession. We can't do it within. We have to engage externally um, to find that. Now, I know large institutions will say, well, the donors want to give to the medical school. Well, you got to figure out how to get donors to give to PA as well. So I think we need to do that. Um, I think we also need to, again, we need to look at those prerequisites. And I think when people say they do a holistic approach, you know, go, I know you've had Eli, Dr. Villarreal on here, you've had Elias on here, and he's probably one of the best examples who of people who really know how to do a holistic admissions process. I know Duke has done that. People say it all the time, but do you really look, when you think about the privilege that some people have where they've had They've been had educational advantage. And then so it's where they've gone to school. And then even in their application process, who's coached them, who's read their application and coached them on their interview. And I think sometimes males don't always come across, you know, it's all oh, they're, they're, they're a car salesman. Oh, their hand was sweaty. Um, and women are always so poised and, and practiced. And so I think we have to help our males do better job at interviewing. But I think when you look across the board at gender identity, when you look at ethno-cultural diversity, we have set up such barriers and we've there's such disparity within the ability of some people to be able to engage and be seen equally as someone who just comes all polished. You know, they've they've had they're slick with everything almost, I almost say sometimes, oh, too slick with the question, too well performed. <laughs> and I don't mind a sweaty hand. And I'm okay if you if the tears are because it was an emotional story, um, don't just cry. But but I think that those are not always perceived as positives. We need strength. We can't have somebody who's weak. Um, and so I think we have to look at that. And I think we have to all become better at a more holistic approach to our admissions process. And looking at barriers, standardized testing has gotten out of control. Now we got the PA cat and the MCAT and the GRE. And I know many of my colleagues, when I went to school, Yale didn't require any. And so I know colleagues who hadn't taken any of those exams. And I think we would be at a loss in our profession if they weren't PAs today. And so I think we have to figure out what we're doing with that because the cost associated, and if you are educationally disadvantaged, you're just not going to score as well. And does that mean anything that you can take a test? Doesn't make you have a better heart and it doesn't make you kind at the bedside. I can teach anyone. I can put factoids in anyone's head. I can't teach you to be a kind and a good person. I can model for you, but I can't teach you that. Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more with the things that you said. So I kind of want to circle back a little bit to the fact that you and I both developed um, brand new programs. And uh, I think both of them are just off with a bang and are seeing really incredible early outcomes from our from our early graduating classes and are really excited about the things that uh, that our students are, are heading out in the world to do. Um, but I think a lot about, you know, you referenced earlier the explosion of new programs. And um, there's certainly, you know, I know you've spoken about the resources that Case Western Reserve gave you to, you know, both had and also provided to you as you developed that program. And I can only speak in the most highest terms of the resources that Creighton University put forth for us to start our program and the, the experienced teams that both you and I were able to amass to really build a quality program. And I, and I truly believe that these institutions have done this for the right reason, because they understand the workforce needs and the importance of PAs as a, as a contributing member of the, of the healthcare team. But I think we also probably both have had experiences seeing programs developed at institutions that maybe see the addition of a PA program as, you know, an opportunity to generate tuition and perhaps to to float a struggling institution financially. So from your perception, how is a prospective PA student who is thinking about and is looking at new programs, because I, I truly believe there are there are great existing programs and there are existing programs that are struggling. And likewise, there are new developing provisionally accredited programs that are really great. And there are others that are maybe starting on a little bit shakier ground. So how, how does a pre-PA student look at a provisionally accredited or a developing program? How do they look at it and kind of critically evaluate that program to say, I think this one's got what it takes to 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 be a great opportunity for me for you know since I'm going to invest a lot of time and money and effort into 
my education, which, which provisional programs am I willing to take a risk on and which ones might, what might some red flags be for a student? Well, thanks for asking that because I think it's a very important question. So I, when we were in the provisional process, I would say you need to know that we are accredited. Provisional is not suspension. It's it not probation. It's not termination. We're not in trouble. It's a process in the accreditation process. And to be honest, you get watched, you're, you're accredited, but you're just watched much more closely, which is all to protect you. RPA does this to protect the public and pre-PA students, you are the public, you are the people they're trying to protect so that when you arrive at that school, there are pencil, well, they're computed. I won't say pencils, no one has a pencil anymore, but there are computers and there's four walls and there are teachers and there are clinical sites. So provisional is a good process. It, as you know, Stephanie, it is a huge lift and it's hard but it's the right thing to do. So what do you do? First, I would look at the faculty. You all know how to do Dr. Google. Google everyone and see where they're, where they're at. Where are they from? How, how long have they been in education? Now, it doesn't mean that a newer educator isn't good, but you want to see at least somebody there who's got experience because those this is these are tough days with lots of learners, whether you're in a rural area or in an urban area, because even every school is sending their students everywhere they can to find sites. So you need to have somebody there and they may not be the program director, but somebody has got to have lots of experience. So look up the faculty and see what they've done, see what their successes are. How many times have they moved around? Has it been for a good reason or do they change that more than they change their hairstyle, their job? And then look where your house is built. Are they in an institution that's solid? Now, having said that, you don't have to be in a medical school because I was at Quinnipiac. Now I helped them start a medical school, but when we started the PA program, 1994, first class, it was not, but they were an extremely strong health sciences. They had had nursing since the 60s, rad tech since the 60s, OT and PT were ranked nationally. So they had what I like to call a portfolio of health sciences, which I knew would be helpful to us because they knew what the health sciences were. They had a library. They added a few more PA journals, but they had the big stuff. They had some equipment there. So adding more wasn't a shocker to them when I see, well, I need these things for PA or we don't need a plinth table, we need an actual physical exam table. So look at the portfolio when you see, so again, you could be Quinnipiac, small little school in Connecticut, right? But did very well, was has always been, um, you know, when I say ranked, but has been well-received and puts out a good product. They started in, you know, the small liberal arts school. So you could be in that area. But when you see a school that's located in an institution where I'm like, uh, I don't see any health profession, nursing, OT, PT, social work, nothing. Yeah, you can go to social work, speech, language, pathology, nothing. I say, oh, that's a question. So look at how well the house is built. Then look at the house. Have they, how strong is their accreditation, right? Your foundation, is the institution accredited? Stephanie, you and I know that, what was it, probably 12, 15 years ago, the PA, the PA program in a state that, in a, that will go unstated was accredited as a program through ARCPA. They didn't have a provisional then, but they were accredited. And then within the year, the institution closed down. They lost their accreditation and poof, now these students were and, and we've all had calls in the last year or so from schools saying, can you help me? Uh, we're shutting down. And so look at the institution to see their accreditation status, not just the program's accreditation status. Look at resourcing. What kinds of things? Look at the library. Do they have a simulation center? We all use simulation now, whether we're using standardized patients or we're using the simulated models. Look at that. Um, look at, I know it's hard because they're all going to list all the places that they have clinical sites, um, but do look and see, you know, what they have in the area. I said, look at the faculty, um, look at, you know, everybody looks at jobs and pants rate. And those, those are numbers to look at as well. And you can get those, those are pretty public knowledge to see, you know, what the pants pass rate is. They have to post that. So I think you need to look at that because, you know, you can graduate and be a PA, but you can't be a PA and get a job if you don't get your C. So I think looking at those things are all important. Yeah. I always joke a little bit about the pants pass rate. You know, we're required by the ARC to post that. And I think that's good because, you know, you have to be able to demonstrate that you have outcomes. If people are going to invest the money into going to your school. You want to make sure that they're going to be able to pass the pants. 
But, you know, while that's important, it's not the be all and the end all. There's so much more to it than just that. Because when you think about the pants, it's the least common denominator, right? And so, you know, you hope that schools would be would be teaching beyond the pants, right? That that their goals would be that they set a high bar of, of excellence for the for the education of their students. And then by default, one would hope that 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 those students would then be able to pass the pants because you know the pants is that that least common denominator uh, that all that all PAs must uh, hurdle over to to get into practice. So well, I, I I think you know it's interesting though these are all accreditation standards. You have to have goals and you have to have outcomes for your goals. Again, I think you know you can do anything with data. So just like the PAM score, you can make anything look good. So I say, look at the things that RPA isn't requiring. Go look at their mission and their vision. Does it resonate with you? Go look and see, have they had a turnover in their faculty? You're like, oh, these people keep changing. Look at the accreditation of the institution. Please do not be fooled by brick and mortar. Again, many of these new programs I see coming on, oh, the money is going, we're going to put you in this nice new building and they build them a nice pretty building, but they have no faculty. They don't have resources. So I, in two instances, I came to, when I came to Quinnipiac old building and we didn't even stay on the main campus, they put us off campus after a year because they were like, oh, you have a very different schedule. It doesn't fit into our nine to 950 and, you know, those kind of you know, very structured undergraduate kind of mentality. So we were in this old dumpy building for years. Then we got to a new building, but it didn't make, those students had an amazing experience. Same thing at Case. I was in a building a hundred years old that the medical school started in. And it was amazing. It had character. Well, now we're in an amazing building, but don't be, don't be fooled by the building, right? It's what's behind the brick and mortar. So look at the quality of your educators. What have they done? Have they had leadership roles in the state, nationally? What are they doing in the community? Are they practicing clinicians? Um, and then what educational experience do they have? And, um, you know, look at the mission, the vision. Those are the things I would kind of look at. I agree. You know, I feel like the the building is icing on the cake. It's great to have fancy, shiny new facilities, but the building doesn't teach students. The faculty teaches students. And um, that was something that I told my dean when when I was being hired here. It was before our our new building was was under construction. And I said, you can put me I'll set up shop in an old refrigerator box underneath the interstate overpass. As long as I've got a good faculty, I'll make you good PAs. And and I think that's uh, I think it's easy to sort of get stars in your eyes with shiny buildings and that. And and the buildings and the facilities are important. They're an important piece of it, but they are definitely not the be all and the end all. I mean, the other piece is feel free, ArcPA, they're very public. You can now go on their site, pre-PA students, you can go on their site, you can look at accreditation. Every one of us is listed, whatever citation we've had, or if somebody's been on probation or whatever, it's all public knowledge. So you can see, because Stephanie, as you stated earlier, there are new developing programs that I think are shaky, but there are new amazing new programs that are very innovative with wonderful active learning strategies. There are old programs that are great, and then there's some that aren't. So I think you need to look deeper than the name, deeper than they've been around. The U.S. News ranking. (laughs) A U.S. News and popularity report. Um, Uh Now, I will say... You know, I look at some of I look at a lot of those top schools and they are the top schools. They are the ones we all look up to. But, you know, then you get into, I don't know, you're going to be the 295th school, right? What are we up to? 290 something. And because I just we just added a few more. So that's don't look at the ranking. Go Google the individuals. Go see, you know, go look them up and see what they've done. See what their educational experience. What is their educational? What is their educational portfolio? You know, we all want to know about you, the the applicant. We want to know everything you You've done. What are we sharing with you about us? What can you find out about us? What's our portfolio look like? Absolutely. Well, Cindy, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to chat about, or are there kind of parting thoughts or parting words that you'd like to share? So, one little plug that I like to put in is that uh, you know we all have our banners to carry, and mine has been that PA education is such a unique model um, that. Those of us in it, I think we just take it for granted and we're like, yep, this is who we are, but it is so unique. And I think that we have not done justice to becoming more external. You know, when you think about high impact teams, 
We think about self, like individual members. So I think of all PA educators as a high impact team. So individually educators, the effectiveness is an educator. We think of team. How do we function as a team? You know, do we have high team functionality, like internal to our team and PA educators share and we get together and we do this cool stuff and PAEA, an amazing organization. And then we have high team performance, right? The outputs, programs doing great stuff. But we haven't approached the third piece, which is systems. And, you know, how are we positively influencing our systems that are external to us, whether it's medical education organizations, whether it's healthcare systems, whether it's community agencies. And I think that, you know, when I look at the academy and with all the stuff with the name change and, oh, we need publicity and we know people still don't know who we are and, oh, I'm losing a job to so-and-so. That's us. That's us. That's our, we own that. That's not the other people. It's us. We have been so busy gazing at our navel for 60 plus years now and so entrenched in being PAs. We need to get out there. And, and I would encourage if you're a PA educator listening or a pre-PA student, it's incumbent on you too to become external, to become an advocate outside of the profession as well. So become involved in community agency, help those healthcare agencies. We don't have enough clinical sites because we don't have, like in Ohio, we don't have PAs in pediatrics. We don't have PAs in family medicine. Gee, shocker, hard to find those sites. Don't have PAs in women's health. And so we need everyone, not just PA educators, all of you going into the profession. We need to bear that cross. We need to bear that that responsibility to help take who we are as a profession and as educators, we need to take our educational model outside of the profession and help other, you know, medical school should be looking at us and going, Ooh, you can do this in a shorter period of time and still be a good clinician. We still are putting PAs out there that work in sub subspecialties. Now they have more responsibility than ever. And we're able to do that. But I think we have to think about that, about our, our influence on the system. So as for our pre PAs there, I like to say when people come to interview, when they did at Quinnipiac and they do it case, is that I have the best two jobs in the world. I am a PA. I wouldn't change it for the world. And I'm a PA educator living the dream. So I think, you know, you've chosen a profession that's amazing. Your route may not, you know, a lot of PAs, the route is not straight. It's not, I graduate from college and I go to PA school. It many times takes twists and turns. If you don't get in the first time, reflect on yourself. Don't submit the same application because if it wasn't good last year, it's not going to change this year. And and it only gets more competitive. Reflect on yourself, see where your weaknesses are. If it's academic, fix the academics. If it's community work, fix the community work. And then just know that every time, even if you don't get right in right away, is that whatever you've done in that next year or two, that just makes you a better person. It makes you a better PA. You'll be a better provider. So don't give up on that dream and, um, you know, continue to bring and bring forward your life experience that will help us diversify the profession that we're not looking for a cookie cutter. We're looking, we're, we're bring everyone under the tent, come as you are, we will embrace. Cindy, thank you, not only for your many, many contributions to the PA profession and PA education, but also for being here with us today. Well, thank you. And I'm going to leave you with my favorite quote from Maya Angelou. Can't go through life with a catcher's mitt on both hands. Take time to throw something back. Well, we'd like to thank our guest, PA Cindy Lord, for her time and insights into the Case Western Reserve University PA program and into the PA profession. Cindy's contributions to our profession are vast and the impact she has made are truly inspirational. Tune in next week as we meet P.A. Carrie Berry from Northeastern University in Boston. P.A. Berry shares her path to becoming a P.A. as well as her insights on the Northeastern University P.A. program and their dual degree options they have available for P.A. students. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.